I'd like to begin our study this evening with just a few words of thanks. I'd like to thank the congregation here for hosting the meeting and for allowing me and others as well to attend this meeting and to learn many great truths. I'd also like to thank our two moderators, Brother Ron and Brother Richard, for the work they've done as well. And I want to especially thank Brother Richard because he is the one that allowed me to make a change in the topic that I was going to have this evening. Now originally a few months ago Richard had called and said I want you to take this certain topic and I said okay. But as time passed on a little bit I realized pretty quickly I wasn't going to have time to get to this topic and especially the month of November in early December was extremely hectic because we were trying to put the final touches on that little book that we published and to be honest with you if I had taken that original topic then probably I would have spent about a week on it and you can imagine the results in that situation. I was at a little meeting in uh, Green Oaks and Brother George was there and I was kind of bemoaning the fact at that time that it hadn't been changed and I was kind of complaining I don't know what I'm gonna do I don't know how I'm gonna get to this topic and he said just call Richard and I, I thought about it but I, I really didn't want to but he said go ahead it won't matter so I called Richard he graciously allowed to change and I want to tell you something brother if you didn't hear a sigh of relief when we got off that phone then maybe you need to borrow my hearing aids for a while because <laughs> I, I think that relief as audible went a long ways but thanks for allowing me to change this in the book of 2nd Samuel chapter 23 in verse 1 the Bible says these are the last words of David and when the Bible says that these are the last words of David, I don't think they were the last words he spoke as a human, really. I think they were the last words that he wrote as an inspired man, perhaps in the form of a psalm. Something he said that was inspired in that situation. These were some of his last inspired written words. And the Bible says this in verse 5 of that passage, Although my house is not so with God, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? I want you to notice in the second line that he says that God has made with me an everlasting covenant. Now, this evening for a few minutes, I'd like to study with you this covenant that God made with David. Now, it is one of five great covenants found in the Old Testament. The first great covenant in the Old Testament is Noah's covenant. Now you remember in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood God told Noah that I will make a covenant with you and in this covenant I'm not going to destroy the world by flood again. And so this covenant was really not made just with Noah it was also made with all living creatures. Now the second covenant that is found in the Old Testament. The second great Old Testament covenant is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now you remember in this covenant that God said that I will bless you and from you will come a great nation and that nation will receive a land. But even more importantly a seed would come from Abraham's descendants and all families of the earth would be blessed through that seed. And so the second great Old Testament covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. Now the third great Old Testament covenant was the Mosaic covenant 
And this is the one that God made with the children of Israel when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He made this covenant with them at Mount Sinai. Now this covenant is one that is both political and spiritual, or at least it contains political elements and spiritual elements. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that's the basic covenant that it's talking about. When you read the prophets and even the kings, when you read those passages and the prophets are calling the people back to God's covenant, that's the one they're calling them to, the Mosaic covenant. Now the fourth covenant is David's covenant, which we're going to talk about tonight. And the fifth covenant is one that's called the New Covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, the Bible there says, God being the speaker, that in a future time that He would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that we make before. Now, this new covenant that is spoken of in the Old Testament is also called the covenant of peace and also called an everlasting covenant in the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel. And so these are five great Old Testament covenants. Think of them as five pieces to a puzzle. Each piece to that puzzle presents a beautiful picture. Each piece to that puzzle contains a great truth. Each piece, in a, stand, in a sense, sort of stands on its own. But when you place these five pieces together, when you place these five great covenants together, you will have a most beautiful picture. And that picture is a picture of redemption. Now, before we start talking specifically about the Davidic covenant, we need to kind of back up just a little bit and talk about covenants in general. And in fact, if we can get a basic understanding of a covenant, then that's going to help us to understand the Davidic covenant. Now, the word covenant is one of those words that's a little hard sometimes to define. It's one of those common words that we know the meaning to. We use it all the time. But to sit down and give a specific meaning of it is a little bit difficult. And so what I'd like to present to you is a definition of the word covenant from a book called Kingdom Through Covenant by two authors by the name of Gentry and Wellam. And this is what they say about covenant. It's a very simple definition. It simply is a covenant is a relationship between two parties or between two parties involving permanent and serious commitments of faithful, loyal love, obedience, and trust. And then they add this little uh, expression as well. Covenants differ considerably from business contracts or from marketplace agreements. Now there are some key points that they make in their simplified definition of a covenant. Number one, a covenant involves a relationship between two parties. A covenant is not like a business agreement. Two complete strangers can make a business agreement. But a covenant really is stronger. A covenant involves some kind of relationship between these two parties. Number two, the relationship within a covenant is chosen or elected. I guess in some ways you could say that it's not like where somebody puts a gun to your head and says, you're going to enter this covenant. But a covenant generally is something that people choose to enter into. Or maybe they're elected to enter into. It's a lot like marriage. When we talk about a covenant, compare it to the marriage covenant. Because the Bible calls marriage a covenant over in the book of Malachi chapter 2. And you understand a covenant. 
that when a man and woman enter into a covenant, there is a relationship that is involved there. And that it is one that is chosen that they will enter. Number three, a covenant also includes commitments, promises, and obligations on the parties, on both parties. Both parties will enter into a covenant and will have some responsibility in that covenant. Something they are responsible for doing. And then number four, the parties and covenants are sometimes not equal in authority. Kings sometimes would make covenants with the citizens of his kingdom. Obviously, kings are greater in authority than the citizens of their kingdom. God makes authority with men, and obviously God is greater than men. And so in covenants, there can be a greater and a lesser party involved in this covenant. Now what I think is interesting is that there seems to be two common types of covenants that are discussed in the Old Testament. Maybe there's more, but at least there's two common types of covenant. There's sometimes there's a little bit of difference between covenants. These two kinds of covenants, number one is called the suzerain vassal covenant, and the second one is called a grant covenant. Now there, there are some differences between these two. They're very similar. They have some of the same requirements, but they also have a little bit of a different part as well. In the first one, the suzerain vassal covenant or treaty, that involves a suzerain, and I'm pronouncing that right, I hope. If I'm not, feel free to correct me on that. It won't bother me. Suzerain. The word suzerain refers to master. The word vassal refers to a servant. So it is a master-servant type of agreement. It is agreement in which a master has entered with a servant, and there are certain responsibilities put upon that servant. That servant is to obey certain things in order to be blessed by the master. Now, the second treaty or the second covenant is one that's called the grant covenant. And this covenant is very similar or at least somewhat similar to the other. It involves two parties. And in fact, sometimes it involves a superior over an inferior. But in this covenant, the master doesn't place any obligations on the servant. He is promising to bless the servant. He's going to do something good for the servant, something kind and benevolent for the servant. So while they're very similar, there's a little bit of shade of difference between these two types of covenant. If you look at this little chart, it's going to stress the uh, fundamental differences between the grant and the suzerain vassal treaties. For example, number one. Number one, as far as the grant treaty or covenant is concerned, the giver of the covenant makes a commitment to the vassal. In the suzerain vassal treaty, the giver of the covenant imposes an obligation on the vassal. See the little bit of difference there. And the, and the grant, he makes a commitment. Under the two, he imposes an obligation. Number two, under the grant uh, covenant, it represents an obligation of the master to his vassal. Under the suzerain vassal covenant, it represents an obligation of the vassal to his master. Again, a little bit different uh, idea there. Number three, under the grant treaty, it primarily protects the rights of the vassal. Under the suzerain vassal treaty, it primarily protects the rights of the master. Number four, under the grant treaty, no demands are made by the superior party. 
And number four, under the suzerain vassal, the master promises to reward or punish the vassal for obeying or disobeying the imposed obligations. Now the reason that this is important is because when we talk about the Davidic covenant, we're going to discover that the Davidic covenant falls under the category of being a grant treaty or a grant covenant. And in order to understand the difference, we will see that the Mosaic covenant is a form of the suzerain vassal treatment, uh, treaty. Now again, there are many similarities in the similarities between the Davidic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant both are graciously offered by God. God offers the covenant to the parties through His grace. They're similar on that. But there are some differences, some shade of differences as to what is embraced in that covenant. Now we're going to see that under the Davidic Covenant no demands were made of David. God is going to bless David and this is what he's going to do for David. But under the Mosaic Covenant that God graciously entered within them, you will see that also that there are obligations now placed upon the people. They have to obey. They have to do what God says. And if they don't do what God says, they will be cursed. And so as we go through our study tonight, I, I don't know, you know how important that little tidbit of information is, but at least consider it. A little bit of difference between the Davidic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we're ready to turn to the passage that introduces us to the Davidic Covenant. And it's over in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies round about. This is describing a time in David's reign when he finally gets to enjoy a little bit of peace. Now, if you study the life of David, you will see that his life was pretty hectic. He was under a lot of stress in a lot of his life. David, you remember, starts off as a shepherd. But soon you'll remember that uh, he fights Goliath. And once he fights Goliath and kills Goliath, he's placed on the fast track toward eventually becoming the king of Israel. After he kills Goliath, he's brought to Saul's household and it begins a time, a period of time there where Saul does not trust David and eventually tries to kill him. So there are years when David is looking over his back wondering who's trying to kill me now? And he's going around wondering why is this bullseye on my back because people are after me all the time. Saul will try to kill him. David will run from Saul and he will spend years in the wilderness trying to escape Saul. Not only that, he will then go over to the Philistines and will march with them for a while. So there was a lot of stress in David's life, even as a young man. When David becomes king at the age of 30, he is anointed king only over the kingdom of Judah. That's the only tribe that will accept him as king. The northern tribes will line up under a fellow, a son of Saul, by the name of Ishbosheth. Now, at that time, there will be a big civil war again between Israel and between Judah. So, David is under a lot of stress. After seven years, Ishbosheth is murdered, and the northern tribes come to David and make him king. But that's not the end. After that, the Bible says that David decides to go and conquer the city of Jerusalem in order to make it his capital. It was politically neutral and strategically located. Israel, Jerusalem was an important city. 
because David wanted to unite the people. And he wanted to unite the people because the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12 verses 11 through 14 says that God's people were going to worship in one place. And so that's going to be Jerusalem. And after that, David will bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in order to, in order to unite the people. He will then fight more battles with the Philistines. Now I've gone through a lot of material here to show you one simple truth. David's been under a lot of stress. David's had a lot of things going on in his life. And in this passage, the Bible says, finally, God has given him rest from all of his enemies. There is a lull in the fighting going on with David. Now, David does probably what we all would do. He probably is walking around going, Phew! I'm glad all of this stuff is over. I'm glad these wars and all of these things have shut down for a little while. And as he is remembering and expressing his gratitude to God for this peace, no doubt he reflects back on his life. And he thinks, wow, I have, I have conquered a lot of enemies. I have won a lot of battles. I have accumulated a lot of wealth. God has really blessed me. But then I can't help but think that a little twinge of guilt hits David. Because you see, David realizes where he's living, and he's realizing where the Ark of the Covenant is. David is living in a mansion. The Ark of the Covenant is living in a tent, or has been placed in a tent. And David perhaps kind of reasons like this, you know, when, when I was a shepherd, I slept outside, and I was surrounded by stars. And now I'm the king, and I'm living in a mansion, and I'm surrounded by servants. And so he's reflecting on his life. Maybe he even thinks back to the time when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he remembers the great crowd of people that gathered and worshipped God bringing the Ark in. And he remembered dancing in front of the Ark. And he remembered how wonderful that feeling was the day the Ark came to Jerusalem. And now then, he's thinking, I live in a mansion. And the Ark of the Covenant's in a tent. And so I want to do something about it. In verse 2, the Bible says that the king calls in Nathan the prophet and he says, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Now here's what I think is interesting about this passage. What it says in verse 3. Then Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now I want you to notice in verse 2 that all David says is, I dwell in a house of cedar and the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan says, Go ahead and do what you want to. In other words, what he's saying is, go ahead and build the temple. Now, where has David said he's going to build a temple? He hasn't said it in this passage. So what that indicates to me is that either David and Nathan have discussed this at some previous point, or Nathan's pretty good at reading minds here, because that's what's on David's mind. He wants to build a house for God. He wants to build the temple. Well, Nathan says, go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now what we discover in this passage is that Nathan has jumped the gun. Once you notice, he says, the Lord is with you. The problem with that statement is the Lord hadn't said anything about that. That night, God will speak to Nathan, and he will say, David is not the one to build my house. Now, he doesn't say this on this occasion in this context, 
But later on, we find the reason why David couldn't build the house. It's because David was a man of war. David had shed blood. And I guess that the temple was to be a house of peace. And so, at least as far as this time frame is concerned, God says, David is not the one to build the house. He's not the one to build the temple for me. In fact, God says to Nathan, when the children of Israel came out of slavery to Mount Sinai, and I accompanied them, I never dwelt in a house when we wandered 40 years, when we settled in the land of Canaan, I never lived in a house. And in fact, neither did I ever ask you to build me a house. Now, you would think from this that God was really displeased with David. You would think that God was really put out with David here and was ready just to, to punish him. But he really wasn't. God is going to bless David. And in fact, God has great plans for David. It's just that David wasn't to build the house. In fact, God says, David is not the one to build me a house. I will build him a house. Now, when God says that, he's using a little play on words. And that's the word house. When God says, David will not build me a house, he means David will not be the one that will build me a temple. But when he says, I will build David a house, he means I will build from him an everlasting, or at least a, a royal dynasty. I will build from David a royal dynasty. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God makes his covenant with David, there are some elements that are immediate. And there are some elements that are going to happen after David's death. There are three things that are said that are going to happen during David's lifetime. This is found in verses 9 and 10 and 11 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is going to enjoy rest. And we've already seen in verse 1 where that's starting to take place. David is enjoying rest. Number two, God said, I'm going to make your name great. And if you'll go ahead and read the story of David, you will see that his name was made great in the Middle Eastern world. It was made great and people respected and feared the name of David. And number three, God again said, I'm going to give my people a land. Now, you'll remember that that was a part of the Abrahamic promise, that God was going to give his people a land. Well, it's repeated here. And you know, it's really under the direction of David that Israel got the complete amount of land that God said they would have. And that would begin down close to uh, the border of Egypt and would go all the way to the river Euphrates. David is the one that conquered the enemies and finally accumulated that entire piece of land. One reader, that, one writer that I read after made the statement that the kingdom of Israel went from about 6,000 square miles during David's, I believe it's 600 square miles or maybe 6,000 miles to 60,000 square miles for his kingdom. It enlarged greatly. That was, that was, those were the immediate promises of the Davidic covenant. But there were also some promises made after, that would come after his death. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Bible says, When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking, and you rest with your fathers, that is when you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, 
I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. What we need to understand here is that these are the promises that are given after the death of David. He's not going to actually do these things here himself. Some of his descendants after him would do that. Now again, if we look at this in the form of a chart, these are the covenant blessings that go with the covenant God made with David. As I've said, some of them were immediate in the lifetime of David. Rest from enemies, a great name, and conquering a land. But there were four, I consider, four great blessings that were future to David found within this covenant. Now number one, God promised David a seed. God said, after your death, I will raise up your seed after you. Now, this word seed refers to descendants. And in order to understand the Davidic covenant, you have to understand that this word seed, while it looks singular, is actually a collective noun. Now, a collective noun, for those of you that are grammarians, a collective noun is a noun that appears singular, but it's composed of several elements. It's composed of several different things. For example, the word team. The word team is a collective noun. And the word team looks to be singular, doesn't it? But consider this. This is college football season. Going on basketball season, I guess. But, you know, suppose you're in college football season. Monday morning you go to work and your friend greets you and he says, How did your team do? And you might say something like this. We did great. My team won in overtime. In overtime, the other team had the ball. They threw the ball into the end zone to try to win the game, and we intercepted it. Our safety intercepted it. We then got the ball on the 25-yard line. Our quarterback handed the ball to our running back. He ran all the way down to the five-yard line, and the coach decided to take no chances, so he sent our kicker in, kicked the field goal, and we won. You see, we began with the concept of team. Our team won. But we see that the word team is composed at least of a safety, because he intercepted the ball. It's composed of a quarterback. It's composed of a running back. It's composed of a kicker. And it's composed of a coach. So in other words, team may include several parts. That's true of the word seed. When God says that David's seed will rise after him, I don't believe he's talking about one person. I don't think he's talking about just one individual here. I think he's talking about a group. And that group, as we will see, includes Solomon. And it includes the Judean kings, who were all descendants of David. And of course, ultimately, it will be Jesus Christ. Now, the second point that's made to this covenant is that David's seed will build God's house in verse 13. Now, I understand this to be a reference to Solomon. That Solomon will be the one that builds a temple. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible doesn't tell us that. It doesn't say Solomon will build the temple. All it says is David's seed will build God's house. If you will go though to 2 Chronicles, uh, rather 1 Chronicles, chapters 22 through 28, you will find two great speeches by David where he mentions Solomon as being the one that would build this temple 
And then Solomon even mentions, mentions it in 1 Kings chapter 8 when he dedicates a temple. So Solomon seems to be the one that fulfills this part of the covenant. Thirdly, that seed was to enjoy a special relationship with God. The Bible says, God said, I will be your father and he will be my son. A father-son relationship. And that's indicative of a very special, intimate relationship. Solomon would enjoy that relationship. And I believe that the other Judean kings, the descendants of David, also had the potential to enjoy that same relationship with God. Most of them did not. But some of them could have. And eventually, again, this was fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and I believe verse 5, that very idea is quoted that Jesus, uh, this passage is quoted there about God being the Father and in that context Jesus being the Son. Then fourthly, a fourth element of the Davidic covenant was that David's house, his kingdom, and his throne would be established forever. There is an eternal part to the Davidic covenant. Now I think we can also say that the Davidic covenant is not fulfilled in one person at just one time. But rather, it's fulfilled in stages. And it begins, this part, with the coming of Solomon that will build the house of God, and it will go through the Judean kings, and then eventually it will find its final and ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that this covenant is fulfilled in Jesus? Well, in order to understand this, we have to go to the New Testament and get a little help from the Apostle Peter. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached that great sermon. And there are three points that I want us to consider in Peter's sermon. And, uh, and these are going to be helpful for us to understand how this covenant was fulfilled. Peter's first of all going to talk about the fact that Christ is currently, right now, reigning on David's throne. Number two, He's going to point out that Jesus is the Christ. And then number three, he's going to point out that Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. So let's look at these passages very briefly in order to get through this study this evening. First of all, Peter's going to teach in this sermon that Jesus, that Christ, is reigning on David's throne. Now he's already said some previous things. You already know the background of the day of Pentecost, I hope because we're not going to begin with the background of Pentecost. We're going to jump right in to the middle of his sermon and draw this point out. In Acts 2, verses 29 through 31, Peter says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Two points I want to make here real quick. Don't want to go into it in too much depth. We might end the question and answers. But number one, I want you to notice that he specifically says that David is dead and buried and his tomb is with us this day. That's an important point. David is dead and buried and his tomb is with us this day. Now the reason that's important is because going back to that 2 Samuel chapter 7 passage, the blessings that were going to come upon the Davidic covenant would occur while David was dead. Those eternal things, they occurred after the death of David. And so 
the Messiah reigning on the throne of David has to take place while David is dead. Now there's going to come a time when David's resurrected. And at that point when David is resurrected, in the sense I think it's talking about here, you could say that, that he's not dead. And so therefore, the Davidic, uh, the, the uh, descendant of David, the son of David, sitting on David's throne, is going to have to do it sometime between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Okay? Second thing that this passage teaches is that it is because of the resurrection of Christ that he sits on his throne. The Bible says that he being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Now when he says he would raise up the Christ, he's talking about the resurrection. He was going to be raised, resurrected, for a purpose in this context. And that was to sit on David's throne. He foresaying this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruptions. If, if Peter had said to that assembled people, the son of David is going to sit on David's throne, they would have agreed. They would have said, yes, we believe that. But when he would say, the son of David is going to be resurrected from the dead in order to sit on that throne, that may have been a little bit troubling to them. They hadn't put that part of the puzzle together yet. That may have been some new information to them. Now the second thing that Peter mentions in Acts 2 involves the witnesses to what's happening here. He says in verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now I want you to notice a little change right here, and that's that Peter all of a sudden says Jesus. Up to this point, he's been talking about the Christ. Now, the Jews agreed that the Christ was the Son of God, or rather the Son of David. The Jews agreed that the Christ would sit on David's throne. But here's the point. They didn't think Jesus was the Christ. And so Peter now has to prove that. He's got to prove that Jesus is the Christ who's sitting on David's throne. And so he says, first of all, there are witnesses. There are eyewitnesses. We the apostles, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we ate with him, and we saw him ascend to heaven. We are credible eyewitnesses. Not just one, not just two, but there are 12 of these apostles that have seen this. But not only were the apostles human eyewitnesses, there's also the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 33, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. The apostles were not the only eyewitnesses on this situation to the fact that Jesus was sitting on David's throne. He said the Holy Spirit is a witness as well. Now when we think of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Day, we oftentimes think that the Spirit was given to the apostles in order for them to speak in tongues. But I think I would argue that the Spirit being given on Pentecost involved a lot more than just the apostles speaking in tongues. I believe it also refers to the fact that this was a sign from God. This was a sign of kingdom power. There was a new dispensation starting. There was a new era starting. And the coming of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of this new era was an indication that Jesus was sitting on the throne of David. Notice how he says this in the last part. He has poured out this which you now see and hear. There couldn't be any arguing. 
they had to understand. They knew something big, something important had happened. One other thing that Peter points out, I think, in this section is that he teaches that Jesus is the son of David and Jesus is deity. In Acts 2, 34 and 35, for David himself did not ascend into the heavens, but he said, says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, David said this, but he said this about his Lord. Now, the first Lord in the quote, the Lord with all capital letters, to make it simple, we're just going to say that's God. The scriptures also indicate that is, is the deity called Yahweh. But now, there's a second Lord mentioned in this passage. There is the Lord, all capitals. We understand that's God. And then there is a second Lord. And this is David's Lord. David recognizes this being as being his Lord. Now, we understand, obviously, that's talking about Jesus here. And so I want to just jump real quickly to the point. To David's Lord, to Jesus, God said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice that he is to sit at God's right hand, which is an indication of sharing in the reign of God. To sit at God's right hand means that you share with him in his reign. Now, I don't know that any human could say that I'm going to sit on the right hand of God and share in his reign. And I don't know of any angels that are said to sit on the right hand of God and share in His reign. If there are, then, then maybe someone can help us to understand that. But that was said about Jesus. And it appears to me that only deity can sit on the throne of God and reign with Him. And so Peter's point is that Jesus is deity. Now, we've gone through this real quickly. But the point to understand from Acts chapter 2 is that Peter announces on Pentecost this wonderful new news Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, is sitting on David's throne. I imagine that caused quite a stir among the people there. I imagine they may have said, did you hear what he said? What did he say? Jesus is sitting on David's throne? And that's the point. Now, there are some people that will argue, you know, Jesus did ascend to heaven, and he did sit on the throne of God, but that's not David's throne. David's throne is going to come... Uh, thousands of years after this, at least 2,000 years after this, David's throne is still to be fulfilled in some future era. If that be the case, Peter has completely deceived us and those people because Peter made the point, Jesus was raised for a specific reason in this context. He was raised to sit on David's throne. Now, as we prepare to close, I want to close with this little question. What does the Davidic covenant mean to me? What does it mean to me right now, December 22nd, 2021? What does it mean to me individually? You know, you may look at it and say, you know, God didn't even make this covenant with us. God made it with David. And it included his descendants after him. So this covenant technically wasn't made with us. But I would argue that God had us in mind when he made this covenant with David. God was planning something great when He gave this covenant to David. And that is that we are the recipients of wonderful blessings because of this covenant that God made with David. Now the one great truth I think that we can draw out of this lesson is that Jesus is our King. Jesus is our King. You know, we need two things to go to heaven. 
we need two very important things to go to heaven. You know what they are? Well, number one, we need a savior. Number two, we need a king. And we are so fortunate tonight because Jesus fulfills both of those requirements. He is Savior and He is King. We need a Savior and a King to go to heaven. Not just a Savior, but we need a Savior and a King in order to go to heaven. Now, as far as the Savior is concerned, we had a real problem. And that problem is sin. We have a problem with sin. We're not born with it. We're not guilty of Adam's sin. We're not born possessing a sinful nature, but we have a problem with sin because sin is so much stronger than we are when we're trying to live on our own. No matter how good we may be, all it takes is one little slip up, one mess up, one wrong, one sin, and on our own we're lost, no matter how good we may live the rest of our lives. Well, Jesus is our Savior. John would say in John 1 verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then John would say in 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours but the sins of the whole world. Now, if we were to look at the Abrahamic covenant, you would see that that covenant stresses that Jesus is our Savior. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? Part of that covenant is temporal, the land and the nation of Israel, but it produced something that was spiritual. And that's the seed, that seed that was promised to bless the whole world, and that seed was Jesus. We need a Savior. But you know what, folks? We also need a king. We need a king. Because you see, before we were Christians, we were all on different paths in this world. Some people were going the path of pleasure. Some people were going the path of materialism. Some people were taking the path of self. Some people were taking the path of human relationships. But the problem with all these paths is that they only end up in one place, and that's hell. Well, Jesus came along and, in a sense, lifted us off of these paths. When we obeyed the gospel, He lifts up, lifts us off of these paths, and He put us on the one path. The one path that goes to the throne of grace, that goes to the throne of God. But you know, once we're on that path to the throne of God, we still need help. We need a king. We tend to get confused. We tend to sometimes take the wrong directions. Even as Christians, sometimes we take the wrong path. And so we need a king that will direct us and lead us to heaven. We need a savior and we need a king. I want to suggest to you tonight that the Davidic covenant stresses the idea that Jesus is that king. Just like under the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant has some temporal parts to it. We're talking about those physical kings of Judah. But it also has that which is spiritual, that seed that would be our king, and that seed would be no other than Jesus. You see, these two great covenants stress these two essential requirements that Jesus brings to us. The Abrahamic covenant stresses Jesus as Savior, and the Davidic covenant stresses Jesus as King. It's comforting to know that in this life, we have a King that will help us and lead us. But it's even more comforting to know that when we leave this world, we have a King 
that will usher us in to eternal bliss. The Davidic covenant teaches us about that king. The Davidic covenant teaches us that that king is Jesus.